is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart Every Disney movie ever this is our much campaigned for Halloween special, so I hope you're all ready for a bloody and honey ride. As usual, I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me is my co-host Megan Bojarski. This is a special episode for us because it will be our first bonus episode with a guest host. Joining us today is Dr. Kendall Phillips, a professor from the Communication and Rhetorical Studies Department at Syracuse University. If you're a longtime fan with a good memory for details, you might know that I happen to get my master's degree from that very same department. And Dr. Kendall Phillips has published many books relevant to today's topic, including A Place of Darkness, The Rhetoric of Horror in Early American Cinema, Controversial Cinema, The Films That Outraged America, and Projected Fears, Horror Films and American Culture. He is also the co-editor for the Horror and Monstrosity Studies series at the University Press of Mississippi. And you can find him at Dark Projections on Twitter, which we just don't refer to as its current name because it's really dumb. Agreed. <laughs> Kendall, welcome to, the, welcome to Dream of Mind and Heart. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Megan. And I should say in the interest of absolute full disclosure that I was Megan's advisor back at Syracuse. So I suppose I have some responsibility for whatever disaster is about to happen as we talk about this film. I guess I'll call it a film, but it is an honor to be here. Thrilled to talk to you both and glad to be part. Surprising that I'm part of a Disney program because that's not really exactly my jam, but I'm glad to play at the intersection of really creepy, bloody stuff and uh, the House of Mouse. Technically, this isn't a Disney movie, so that's fitting. To be fair, I, I don't think we've officially said thus far in this episode what movie we're covering. So for those of you at home, we are covering The Pooh, Blood, and Honey. Uh, for those of you who are interested in watching this film, which you may or may not be by the time we're done with this, it is currently streaming exclusively on Peacock. It is available on the three, free version, but it does have ads. So it is possible for you to watch it without paying additional money, which is definitely the best way to do it. And I will say, the thing I do like about Peacock is that they put all the, you watch like a minute or so of the ads up front, and then the whole movie plays interrupted. So it's not one where they're, it's not prolonging the experience in, in this case by inserting other ads. So that that was helpful. So we're going to kind of loosely follow our usual format and talking about, you know, sort of the conception and production and and release but we're also going to be talking about maybe the scariest concept of all which is u.s copyright laws <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about the conception we're going to kind of do two things here we're going to talk about the conception of winnie the pooh and then the conception of this movie which was basically they could do it so why not 
And, you know, we, we may or may not answer that question here. If we go back to the original idea of Winnie the Pooh, it was written by A.A. A. Milne, and the copyright for the character expired at the end of 2021, as it had been 95 years since publication of the first story. To be fair, this is only in the U.S. The U.K. copyright doesn't end until 2027. Stick with us. The legal stuff is going to get even more confusing than that. I will do my best not to make it very confusing. Couple of brief notes. Uh, only the first Winnie the Pooh book is in the public domain. So characters in the public domain include Pooh, Piglet, Kanga, Roo, Owl, Eeyore, and Christopher Robin. Two characters that are not included, Tigger, who debuted in 1928's The House at Pooh Corner, won't be in the public domain until 2024. And then the character Gopher, if you have any attachment to that character, you may know that in some of the shorts, he comments, I wasn't in the book. And that's true. Gopher was completely invented by Disney and thus will not be in the public domain for quite some time now. Therefore, is protected from treatment like we will be seeing in this film. So <laughs> Gopher should for be very bit. happy. <laughs> <laughs> Tigger, however, eligible to show up in the sequel, assuming it comes out at, you know, at some point next year or beyond budgetary constraints notwithstanding because i do feel like kanga and owl most of eeyore ended up (laughs) (laughs) and ended up being cut for for budgetary reasons but to briefly summarize the plot of winnie the pooh blood and honey and just to be very clear when we say winnie the pooh in the context of this that includes the hyphens between winnie and the and the and pooh because dropping the hyphens apparently is a disney innovation and so therefore You know, so it it gets really, really specific, which I which I think is maybe in some ways the most interesting thing about this movie. But to briefly go over the plot in case you have not seen it after Christopher Robin goes away to college, the residents of the Hundred Acre Wood no longer have access to food. They begin to turn on each other and uh, turn to cannibalism, basically, even though they are different species. It depends on animals. So does it count? But like, well. We'll get into it, but (laughs) they eat Eeyore. And then Christopher Robin returns to the woods to find his childhood friends. He meets a very different version of Pooh and Piglet. Piglet immediately murders his wife in front of him, which was a moment I felt was just kind of underplayed. (laughs) And then uh, later on, a group of, of college girls go on a, like, just a Long weekend to the to the hundred acre wood. Also, fall victim to Pooh, Piglet, and our friends. So, that's that's the loose. It's very much a classic slasher setup, albeit with a a Pooh overlay. <laughs> I would say one of the problems with the movie, we'll we'll talk about a lot of them. Is there's actually kind of three classic slasher setups that are being put in play here. We have like the standard, like people go party in the woods and it doesn't go well for them. We have the revenge plot, which in my opinion could have been the most interesting thing. The first 15 minutes of the movie could have been the whole movie in my opinion. And then the trauma slasher, which is more of a recent invention and had no reason to be in this movie. Our theoretical final girl who does not end up surviving has a plot line where she was stalked and uh, assaulted. 
And so she goes into the woods to escape that, and it's literally never dealt with again. So why was it there? Which will be, honestly, something we'll be saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, it did sort of feel like about four different plots, none of which actually developed in any way but rather than develop one let's just throw them all in and then make sure we have some nudity that that seemed to be that seemed to be the whole purpose of having the college girls uh there partying yes. was so that we could have some frontal nudity because you know christopher robin's not that exciting i think for the average viewer there so it was uh yeah it's a little bit of friday the 13th it's a little bit of uh texas chainsaw and i'd say if, if, if i can throw in here it's a very unfortunate because there is a, a fairly healthy little subgenre. I call it a sub subgenre of imaginary friend horror that is sometimes mm -hmm. built around like the imaginary friend feeling abandoned or the imaginary friend having been there based on trauma. And some of those are, you know, actually pretty interesting or at least developed somehow. But this, the idea that Christopher Robin has somehow abandoned his friend and is now back is, is just sort of like a side dressing. It's never really developed in any particular way. I have a lot of questions about <laughs> about the, the plot and, and the setup. And it's funny because norm normally this is like, this. it feels like the shoe is on the other foot a little bit because this is normally Megan's track on a lot of her episodes where she's like, I need this to make sense. And I need, I, I just need this to make sense a little bit more than it does because my main thing is, okay, so we all know that Pooh's favorite food is honey. And at one point in this movie, mm -hmm. it seems like Pooh is able to control bees. And bees Yes, that is the most interesting part of this movie. And it's a throwaway <laughs> moment that most yeah. people don't even know happened. But like, if you, if you take that one step further, bees make honey. Why is Pooh starving to death in the first place? <laughs> And there's a point where he's dipping his mouth in honey. He's like, right. he's like this very bad, horrible makeup job. Looks like a styrofoam head of Winnie Pooh. The special effects are abysmal in this. But it's like, why didn't you eat the honey you were eating anyway? But it's more fun to eat people, I guess. I'm not quite sure. I think that the B plot point could have been so interesting. And my, my brother-in-law actually watched this movie just because curiosity which is honestly why most people have watched this movie mm -hmm. and he didn't know that that moment happened because it's literally just this like couple of seconds moment where you know we see the random guys who appear in the woods who unless i miss something don't ever exist before that they just appear to be there and to get beaten up by poo and one guy's running away and poo like lifts his hand points it at the guy and the bees chase him and in my opinion, that could have been the most chilling moment in the entire movie. And it's a bl blink and you miss it moment. But that could have been such an interesting like perspective. I don't know. There were so many things that could have gone well. And they just very, very much don't. It was like, it's like it, they realized. It's the general plot summary. They'd thrown in so many horror tropes. They thought, well, would it be cool if we threw in some Hellraiser but instead of having the hooks come out of nowhere, we have bees come out of, that sounds cool, do that. But of course, as you say, it's also that sequence where the the tough guys show up from the neighborhood or from the bar that they, they had run into earlier. And suddenly Pooh is Jason. Like suddenly he is, it's like Jason yeah. takes Manhattan where suddenly he's able to just kind of walk through people and they beat him with crowbars and everything else. And he's now suddenly the indestructible, which we, again, we had not seen. Piglet wasn't indestructible. So why does Pooh control mm -hmm. bees? Why does Pooh become invulnerable? It's like 
we don't know because he's poo i guess that's that's the answer it, it really does feel like it really does feel like this movie was largely improvised <laughs> <laughs> i could see that you know like just like seeing the scene what is gonna work and i know there was some amount of imp- improvisation because the director said at one point like the the whole wood chipper sequence was a a last minute thing because when they showed up to the location the way they wanted to the way he wanted to film it they couldn't do it based on the space they had and they like saw mm-hmm. that there was like a wood chipper outside so they brought that in and like re you know redid the whole scene around it which is fine like that is a great thing about making a small budget independent film is like thinking on your feet solving problems but I feel like you need a better foundation than what is here. Well, while we're there, as the horror guy, let me just say the other thing. Well, there's so many things that are disappointing about this film. I almost would say there's what's not disappointing. But another thing that was remarkably disappointing was the lack of creativity or imagination in the kills. Oh, yeah. We get a wood chipper, a bludgeoning. I mean, a couple of bludgeonings. We get a head run over by a car. It's like these are there's like literally nothing in that that is a oh cool moment again for those people who are kind of gore or splatter fans sometimes you go to a shitty movie like this or a not very good movie like this sorry i picked that in editing <laughs> um a not very good movie like this and you say okay the plot is ridiculous the you know the dialogue is ridiculous but at least i'm going to see some cool head ripped open or some sort of interesting kill but these are just the most pedestrian like just taken right out of uh blockbuster video horror section worst movies uh there's just nothing creative nothing particularly driven by poo or piglet it's just mm-hmm. we'll just have regular slasher kills but yeah, how many times have we seen somebody be put through with wood chipper at this point? Like Evil Dead has at least done that like 20 times by now. The sledgehammer is is decent, but not if we keep playing it over and over. Somebody getting run over by a car happens fairly frequently. Saw it in another not great movie. I think the beginning of last year, there was the uh, Studio 666. Did oh, yeah. the same yeah. thing. I mean, it just, it seemed like you can't call it an homage when you're just cut and pasting kills that were really interesting 30 to 50 years ago. Yeah. And I think, you know, to Kendall's point too, there's, I think actually the thing that most frustrates about me about this whole movie is that like those, the characters could be any characters like besides mm-hmm. the, the, the names and some of the design elements you know, and they're name dropping the hundred acre wood and, you know, like there, there's some details here and there, but like you could rewrite this, you know, the, at, at one point in the interviews at uh, the, the director, whose name is escaping me and I not finding it in the notes at the moment, but he was doing like a Reddit AMA and people were like, Oh, like what other like properties do you want to take it? And, and he was like, Oh, like doing like Teletubbies would be really fun. And I'm like, it, you could just like find replace this script and you're basically there because it just it feels so generic and i and i think that was that's what sort of made me almost check out of it for large sections because there just wasn't anything about this other than the names like i said and even some of the character designs where i was like yeah this this could be a a friday the 13th knockoff with like a guy with a burlap sack over his head and it would change pretty much nothing about this and none of the kills related to anything related to the characters or like 
cheekily referenced moments from the books or the Disney movies. Like I was waiting for a gag where like words would be on the screen because that's always one of my favorite parts of the animated versions is when they like flip through the pages of the book or like the letters are, are like falling or whatever. And there's just there's just none, none of it. And it just the whole thing has just a lack of personality to it, I feel like. At a minimum, drown somebody in the honey. <laughs> yes, right. where's, where's a honey kill? Uh, There's not a single honey kill in the whole thing. Ridiculous. They led up to it with Pooh eating the honey, which honestly is more, this is going to sound stupid, but the way they did the honey is more disgusting than the yeah. blood. The kills mm-hmm. are less disgusting than just this weird mask with the honey of sorts on it. But when they had the girl tied down and he was leaning over her drip the honey that could have been cool i could have seen like a waterboarding with honey kind of thing she doesn't even have a bruise the next time we see her he slaps a guy and his face comes off so so you know no consistency no individual character yeah there's there's so much to struggle with and i guess going back to what ryan was saying you wanted it to make sense in horror it doesn't have to make sense but if you're gonna give a reason for it then stick with your reason. Like, yeah, who th- could have been I, doing this for no reason? Yeah, I think it's it's that internal logic. I think it makes exactly makes exactly right. It, it, it's it's fine if if this is going to be just absurdist, like early Peter Jackson or the Sam Raimi Evil Dead. It's like there's no particular trying to find the real reason for the Necronomicon. It's there as the impetus for a whole lot of... But if you think about that early, again, also low-budget Evil Dead, what it has is creativity, right? It has <laughs> ridiculous, over-the-top, absurd. The same thing with like the early Peter Jackson, uh, like Brain Dead and things. Like it's Meet the Feebles. Like it's like bizarre. And so it's fine. That's your logic. Let's go with it. This doesn't have, I mean, you have Pooh and Piglet, so you should have bizarre over-the-top logic, but you don't because they basically just operate like regular serial killer duo. You've got the vague sense of, you know, childhood trauma slash imaginary friends, which again, as I was saying earlier, has been done really well also by some low-budget movies like Daniel Isn't Real is a great kind of example of the kind of imaginary friend horror or the, uh, if you guys ever saw, there was a TV show called Channel Zero it was a series that only ran a few seasons, but one of those called The Dream Door is about a woman kind of coming back and finding her kind of imaginary, almost poo-like kind of bizarre supernatural friend is still there. So that, like that's been played out, but that doesn't happen. It could have been like super scary, but that doesn't happen. So it ends up just being like bad soup, like all the ingredients I don't <laughs> want put into water. And you think that's not soup, that's that's punishment yeah and and i feel like (laughs) it 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 feels like one of those low budget movies that isn't necessarily embracing the sort of like gritty gorilla filmmaking aspect and it wants to look really glossy and high budget and like imitate the sort of you know the bigger slasher franchises in the way that it looks it feels and is doing things but it just but again it's like what's the point you know like because those movies can do that because they're working on budgets of like five million dollars as opposed to a hundred million dollars and or i mean a hundred thousand dollars rather and with this it's like you know the great stuff about you know evil dead and the, the early peter jackson stuff is that it really is like they are pushing it to the limit because they have nothing to lose you know and it's this feels very I don't know, like sanitized weirdly. Like it's just not, it's just not weird enough. <laughs> but, 
for, for, for being a film whose only purpose for existing other than to make us suffer. But other than that, the only other purpose for this existing is for that transgressive shock. It's like the early, you know, like mm-hmm. Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is kind of one of the first kind of Christmas slashers was all like, oh my God, they're making a Christmas slasher. You can't do that. That's terrifying. That's horrifying. It's transgressive. Okay, so you got the rights to Winnie the Pooh or you got the public domain version of Winnie the Pooh. You're going to make a horror film. I'm with you, Ryan. Go for it. Like, just go wackadoodle. Mm-hmm. And make us something that's going to be totally over the top, totally insane. But you end up with, and can we talk about the the makeup? Can we talk about the masks? Has there ever been a oh, yeah. worse example of horror effects? <laughs> they're pretty bad. I mean, they don't move. They don't. They're they don't move. They're, they're they're just like I for, for a while. I kept thinking, are these just like? Is this supposed to be like? a Jason Freddy mass serial killer thing. Like, but, but of course all the characters treat it as if it really is a giant bear and a giant pig. So we're, mm-hmm. I guess, suspending disbelief, but Lord have mercy. If George Romero could do better in 1968, surely these people could do better in 2020, whatever the hell this was made. So, and again, if there was more weirdness, if there was like more stuff going on, I could overlook that, but it's like, you're not, you're just not giving me anything. And so, I'm really glad that a lot of our notes are actually about <laughs> copyright because it turns out that's maybe the most interesting way to talk about this movie. So Megan, I know you've done a bunch of research into copyright. If you want to give us a, a at least a brief overview of how this movie even exists, if Winnie the Pooh is so associated with Disney. Disclaimer, you all know this, but I'm going to have to say it anyway. We don't want to get sued. Please note, I am not a lawyer. Do not take any of this as legal advice. I just, I want to give you guys some idea of what's going on here. And so I've got, I've got a little bit about copyright, trademarks, all of that. That's going to give us the context on why this could have been an interesting idea in the transgressive way, in the pushback of the Disney, you know, monopoly over culture, all of that does not succeed in, but that I was hoping it would. I was hoping that the hatred for this movie was more because of the controversy than the quality. And the the fact is the controversy is probably the most interesting part of it, the controversy and the reason behind it. This movie exists because Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain. There have been a lot of discussions of the fact that more or less pop culture was born in the 1920s, which is vastly oversimplifying things but essentially that's where we get the idea of the at least current American pop culture as we got the boom of comic books as we got the boom of film we got all these iconic characters and so it's a really interesting point for us now because the copyright laws we have now mean that Winnie the Pooh, Mickey Mouse as well as characters like Superman are all going to be in the public domain in the next 10 to 20 years. And that creates a really interesting moment for artists because we can play with these American pop culture icons in ways that you couldn't before. They were so, so tightly locked down. So there's a couple of different issues here. Copyright is, believe it or not, actually in the US Constitution but it is vague as so many things in our founding documents were. So the most important thing you need to know is 
copyright used to be much shorter. At the beginning, it was, I believe, 14 years. It had been extended. And then in 1998 and preceding that, Disney poured every bit of money they had into lobbying Congress to extend copyright. So they passed the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, which is sometimes called the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. This is for a reason, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast to begin with. So at that point in time, Mickey Mouse was about to go into the public domain. Disney was terrified. And so the new rule was copyright now goes the length of the author's life plus 70 years. Corporate authorship goes for 95 years or 120 years from creation, whichever comes first. That's all complicated. But but the long and short of it is basically the things that are super core to our culture that were made in the 20s, the 30s, and even the 40s are all kind of coming up on those deadlines. And so we're about to have this period where, you know, DC can't control what Superman does anymore. So whether you think they've done a good job or not in the last several years, other people can try their hand at it. And that's going to be something that's going to give us some really awful things and maybe some really great things. And that's kind of where the interesting part of this lies. Disney famously does not allow people to use any of their materials, including Winnie the Pooh. According to the New York Times in 2006, Disney told a stonemason that carving Winnie the Pooh into a child's gravestone violated copyright and they would sue him. That's, that's about as bad as you can go to, to come after a child's grave. So this is something that Disney specifically has a long, long history of locking down. And that's one of the reasons that these upcoming years are going to be so interesting. Because at the end of this year, they lose Mickey Mouse-ish, not really, as we've talked about before. They lose Steamboat Willie. They don't lose anything that came after Steamboat Willie. And then the kind of big point for Disney is that there is a difference between copyright and trademark. So broadly speaking, copyright is the right to the exclusive control over a work. Trademark is the right to control your company brand. And copyright expires, but trademark doesn't. So if it is tied very closely to a brand, even when it's in the public domain, you can't play with it. So Mickey Mouse, for instance, is so, so deeply tied to Disney that even though Steamboat Willie is going into the public domain, you cannot do a free-for-all with Mickey Mouse. And specifically, you can't really do it with Winnie the Pooh either. So Winnie the Pooh came into the public domain a year and a half ago, but according to Gerben Law, Disney currently has 28 trademarks specific to the Winnie the Pooh franchise, including eight for Winnie the Pooh, nine for the word Pooh itself, and various others for other smaller characters. And the only reason that this movie has been allowed, according to Aaron J. Moss, a specialist in copyright and trademark law, quote, no reasonable person would ever believe that Disney would authorize that kind of story. And that's kind of what it comes down to. They can get away with it because nobody's going to watch this movie and go, ah, yes, a Disney film. 
Disney's live action movies have not been good, but they're not <laughs> this. We can talk about how bad the Lion King, you know, live action CGI animals are, but they, even they have more expression than the, the <laughs> random pig head. So no Little Mermaid Massacre so, coming so anytime soon. I think we're safe. Well, you know, the, the original story is public domain, but, you know, these Disney elements, they're, they're definitely keeping it kind of locked down there. So that's the backstory. It is very tightly controlled, but this window's opening for the first time in forever. There are people pushing with Mickey Mouse. Some of you might have heard about John Oliver kind of threatening Disney in April of this year. He started sneaking Steamboat Willie into his shows just so that he could claim it's associated with his brand to kind of fight the trademark stance. The director, Reese uh, Frake Waterford, has said that he, he has no desire to take that specific risk. He's not going to make a horror Mickey, but he is going to try and make a lot more horror child stories or horror versions of American classic characters, which is ironic because this is an English story, but he really wants to play with these parts of culture that have been so locked down. Some people think that's a good idea. I don't necessarily disagree. I think that there is value in us opening that up. There have been a lot of people talking about it and Will Bettingfield of Wired even said, quote, Pooh flogging Christopher Robin with Eeyore severed tail is good for the health of creativity in America. I'm, 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 I'm not sure it goes that far, but uh, I do agree that to play with these childhood characters, to play with the property of the company that owns more and more of our culture every day is a good thing. It is a good thing for us to be able to kind of do that pushback with the culture. However, this movie is is not the shining example of that by any means. I think to that point, you know, and, and coming up on on your your question in our notes about, you know, how, how do we feel if this is a, a positive or negative? I mean, I think overall it's really positive in terms of, again, it just gives people more creative freedom to, to do things and you know, to use characters with names that are familiar. I think the timing is super interesting as we are at sort of like what feels like, I mean, we, we may be at the the very top of the hill before the drop in terms of franchises, IP driven filmmaking, you know, the, the, the things that are, the only things that are making a ton of money are things that are, you know, very much these copyrighted characters that are very much brand associated, like Batman, Spider-Man, all these superhero characters, Disney remaking their own uh, animated stuff as live action. It's like it, the way to get people's attention is to say like, hey, remember, this is this thing that you already like. You should come see the next version of it. I think that makes the move of some of these characters, at least in their original incarnations, into the public domain more interesting like that the intersection of those two things is is very interesting to me and i'm i'm very curious to see how it's going to play out i don't think we're going to have a poo cinematic universe coming anytime soon uh, <laughs> out of this but no i think i think you're right i mean it's certainly you know culture's always been 
a, a sort of cacophony uh, as opposed to a chorus, right? It's all the different approaches. And sometimes that's authorized, as in this case, other times it's unauthorized use, which is also a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But I, to me, the, the, the root to that, the net positive is the, the public domain laws allow for greater creativity and engaging with these characters and reframing the tone. And to me, this, at least if this is the opening salvo, it shot low without a lot of creativity or a lot of transgression for that matter. It was, it was not particularly shocking other than just the concept. So that that's a, but I would love to see, you know, I would love to see an existential drama around poo. I, I mean, that's what I want to see. I want to see the, uh, you know, the. Uh... Well, I mean, technically, I haven't actually seen it, but technically Disney did make that movie with, I think it's just called Christopher Robin with Ewan McGregor a couple years ago, where it's, it is middle-aged Christopher mm-hmm. Robin and his yes. ennui and Pooh and friends come back to sort of talk him out of his, you know, midlife crisis. <laughs> Which was a little like Paddington Bear. Yes. But right. I mean, I want, I want like, you know, I want Bergman's, Ingmar Bergman's Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> like I want Pooh facing his mortality or immortality. And I mean, I think there's so many possibilities, as we said earlier, you know, even possibilities with horror. And you think about some of the other uh, characters that are coming up, like Peter Pan or other characters, there's a lot of possibility there of really taking darker tones there, but it requires creativity. I don't think it has to require a big budget, but it requires mm-hmm. thinking a little more deeply about why the character is important and how you can spin or twist that in uncomfortable ways, as opposed to dousing it in honey and having it rip <laughs> shirts off people. I mean, that's pretty much all I got out of the film. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think you're a hundred percent right when you said this, this aimed low and, you know, didn't, and hit the mark <laughs> um, <laughs> because again, like I, I do, there's a lot of interesting psychological stuff here. And to me often, you know, when, when I watch horror, it's the psychological stuff that sticks with me, or at least makes me more engaged with the horrific things going on. And it really keys into the characters. And like, as soon as, you know, like the, the opening with the animation and everything, and then, you know, Christopher Robin coming back and like a piglet strangling his wife and, Christopher Robin very much underreacting to that moment. <laughs> I was like, you're not gonna try and do it, but it's a uh, big shock to to give them the the benefit of the doubt, which they don't deserve. <laughs> you could be in shock. This is a very weird situation. You thought you were gonna hang out with your best friends and they kill your wife. Or I think she's actually he says wife, but earlier he said you're about to become Mary Robin. So I think technically she's his fiance. But even the movie doesn't seem to know. So here's so, my question, if I can ask. Is we're talking about inconsistencies. So this has bothered me. So if I'm to believe the film, Christopher Robin, who's got to be in mm-hmm. his mid-late 20s, right? He's about to get married. He's clearly kind of starting a professional life. Mm-hmm. Since he was 12 or 13 when he left the 100 Acre Woods, he has believed fully and completely that there were magical bear, pig, mule, etc., living in the forest. Mm-hmm. But he's never gone back the entirety of all this time <laughs> until he's about yes. to get married. And he decides this seems like the right time to go back for the first time in 20, 15 years, 10 years, whatever it is, to pop back in. So at its root, 
Christopher Robin's a jerk, right? Like, I mean, he, he, it's not like he, like, again, a lot of these, these, uh, the, the kind of subgenre of the imaginary friend are people grow up and think, oh, that didn't happen as with mm-hmm. the uh, the Winnie the Pooh version with Ewan McGregor. It's like, oh, I must have imagined that. Oh my God, it really is real. And that's either enchanting or horrifying or whatever. But this from frame one, we have a Christopher Robin who is saying, it's real. They're really here. We're going to go see them. And I think, where have you been? For, where have you been the entire time it took for lovable characters be- to become feral, psychotic hillbillies? <laughs> like, I mean... Either they turned really quickly or he's just really been an absentee landlord. So I got no sympathy for him at all. No, I, th- I, you're totally right. And there's no even mention in the, like, there's no reason why he couldn't have gone back. He uh, wasn't at war. He right. wasn't like shipped off to Antarctica. He's just been off flirting with this person and <laughs> starting a romance. What the hell, dude? You couldn't write. You couldn't pop by. You know, the trains weren't running that decade. It's pathetic. You know? And I'll just say one more thing while I'm on my rant. The other thing I think that this film really fails is a horror film. And, I, and I've always <laughs> said this. What what really makes the kind of horror film you were talking about, Ryan, the kind, the kind you care about, as opposed to just the horror spectacle where you go, ooh, cool, his head blew up, right? To make, a, to make a, any kind of engaging horror, it really depends on the victim. I mean, we always focus on the monster, whether it's Freddy or Jason or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. What we really drives us is a modicum of concern. Like, I want them to survive. I care. So Christopher Robin's a jerk and he's kind of just whiny. Like the entire film, all he does is go, poo, stop killing my wife, poo. Stop killing people, poo. Quit beating <laughs> me, poo. It's like, okay, you're kind of pathetic. <laughs> The cadre of young, soon-to-be scantily clad uh, British college uh, students who show up, there is this vague illusion that one of them has a stalker that maybe will be our final girl, but literally nothing gets developed. I couldn't even tell you the name of most of them. They just kind of pop in and out. We get the gang of toughs that they meet early on in the kind of abandoned Mm -hmm. gas station. They just get dispatched immediately. Who are we supposed to care about? Like, is there a single person in this film that I'm supposed to say, I want them to survive? And even Winnie, like, at least with the later Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I kind of, like, thought Freddy Krueger was funny enough that I kind of hope, or I personally, I have a soft spot for Jason in the Friday the 13th movies, so I'm always kind of like, go get him, Jason, right? But <laughs> Winnie the Pooh's kind of like, you know, as you say, semi-magical, semi-oafish, we don't know what he is. He gets, like, one word of dialogue the entire film that's kind of like just a, again, also a missed opportunity. So it's mm-hmm. like, I can't find anything to care about in this film beyond just the fact that Megan made me watch it. I'm not going to pick on Megan. I promise, but I, <laughs> well, I will let's say, pick on Megan. I think this is, this, this is our chance. Come on, Ryan, let's let her have it. Um, but when she first brought up the idea of covering this movie a while ago, I will say this has been on, on the radar. I'm like, you know, I just don't know that there's going to be enough there to sustain the premise beyond like what would be like a college humor short. And I'm glad to be proven right, at least. But I will say, there are all these things, like everything that we've talked, like the three of us could write a more interesting script for this premise than is actually delivered in this movie. Because if you take, if you do love horror, like I am someone who is, I'm not, an, I'm nowhere near the expert that that the two of you are, but it is a genre that I've come to embrace and really enjoy. And, you know, I, I kind of know where my lanes are with, with horror. But to like it is to understand why you like it and why it works. And here it just, you know, like 
if I had to guess the people who made the, and I, I don't think this is actually the case, but I would guess that this would, was made by like a bunch of, you know, high school kids. And I would be like really impressed that like, wow, they made a movie. <laughs> and I just don't feel like, and again, like I, I've, it's not a budgetary thing. It's choices. It's all about choices. And with the stalker possible sexual assault storyline, I'm not a person who's going to say that's off limits, but if you're not actually going to do anything with it, I think throwing it in there is just a really just tone deaf, almost a classless kind of move. Like it's like, don't bring it up if you're not actually going to even attempt to do it any sort of justice. You're just throwing, cause you want us to make, make us feel like, Oh, like we really are connected to this character. Cause we know that she's been through something horrible before it never seems to come back. It has no relation to like anything that's, that's, happening in the movie proper it's like it there's no i almost feel like if, if like this was a if if Pooh and piglet had been one of the options for killers and like cabin in the woods and we got to see them for like 15 seconds like that would that would do more for me than oh, i would have loved it in this movie yeah <laughs> yeah i mean let's just call it what it is in the kills in the talk about trauma in the legal interesting controversy side of it it's exploitative. That's all this movie is. That's the only thing it, I'm not going to say has going for it, but that's that's the big descriptor I would give for it. They're playing on trauma, but then brutalizing women with giving them no agency, no strong moments. I like slashers. And I'll, I'll tell you, that's not a genre that's, you know, well reputed for, you know, treating women well. But usually we at least care about one of them. And we see them fight back in a way that we care about. It is a story of fighting for survival. And in this one, you know, occasionally they cry about each other dying. But that's <laughs> that's as much emotion as we get really from any of them. I, I don't know. The best, the best thing I could do with the trauma narrative, and I don't think this is a good way to do it, but the best thing I could do is that the stalker is Christopher Robin and she teams up with Pooh and Piglet at the end to take him down. I think that would be at least a decent way to connect those two narratives. I wish you'd written this movie, Megan. I think there are about a billion things that could be. Yes, any of the... And it's not like they're red herrings. That's the other, it, it, That could right. have been... like You could have made a film around mm -hmm. the idea that she thinks she's going to stalk her and we find out it's not. But we know from like frame 10, like you know, four minutes into the movie... Pooh and Piglet are real. And can I just ask, while we're here, so mm -hmm. Pooh and Piglet have evidently been terrorizing the 100 Acre Woods for a while, right? Because we got some bones mm -hmm. and we got the one woman locked up who's been there for a long time. So this is not like they just started. This has been going on. So who's renting the very well-appointed Airbnb with Pooh <laughs> right on yeah. the others? Like, and, and have they just been like, oh, I guess we could kill anybody, but not those people because you know they want to keep their five story like the people that own the house pay Pooh and piglet go like let's just stay on the other side of the fence because we got a five-star rating and we kind of want to keep this thing going and like and then suddenly one night they go oh i've got an idea let's go kill people they're like what right what the title card shows newspaper articles and radio calling of you know mutilated body found in the woods don't go to the woods don't go here the only answer I have, and it's not a good answer, and it's not a well-set-up answer, is that we know that Pooh and Piglet can use tools. 
So maybe, maybe they figured out how to set up an Airbnb account and they have made this killing lodge because we also don't know how they even know that these people are here. It's the hundred <laughs> acre woods. That's a big area. They just uh, happen upon the only people that are there. I so love this idea, Megan. I want a post-credit sequence of poo coming back to the blood-soaked uh, Airbnb with the pool with the person bludgeoned and being like, you know, vacuuming and like mopping up the blood <laughs> and then and then going on the line and faking like, uh, oh, we loved our stay, blah, 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 five star. And then I would, that, if you had that as a post-credit scene, I would be here telling you, I love this film. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> Alas, Megan, they need to call you. I think I think the, the producers just need to call you for a much better take on poo, blood, and honey. Then it'll be poo and blood and money to get Megan involved. Boom, boom. It's true. Yeah, no, it, again, it, this is one of those things where like, it seems like almost any idea that is an actual idea that has thought about this is better than what we actually got in this movie. And, and again, I'm... There is a joy to be had in bad movies, but it doesn't, it just doesn't even feel like the people making this had fun. Mm-hmm. No, it is. Yeah. I, right. That's a great point. Cause I, I watch a lot of bad horror movies. So that's sort of my job. And there are a lot of bad horror movies that are, you know, and then these are like literally like made for a hundred bucks. Like those kind of go straight mm-hmm. to YouTube and it's like the acting is bad, but you know what? Often there's like either a, a kind of fun in it or an amateurishness. Or there's maybe sometimes an idea you go like, okay, well, that's kind of a cool Mm -hmm. idea. Like you got something, you just never developed it. There's just nothing here. There's just, you know, it's not even good. Like I don't mind being exploited. Just just do it well. Make me feel something when I'm being exploited. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to at least feel exploited as opposed to just like annoyed or slightly bored or. You know, again, like I think if there was a kill where Pooh was picking up somebody, turning them upside down, putting their head in a honey pot and they drown in in honey, which, again, not an idea that takes a lot of budget. I could figure out how to do that and make it look pretty good, I feel like. And and here and, 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 you know, when when this started, I was like, wait, why are they full size? Like, why are they human sized anthropomorphic animals? Because in the in the story, they are plush animals. The director, again, in, in interviews was like, well, like that was a seems like that was a budgetary choice. Because if you do that, then it's more of a Chucky movie. And like they just didn't have the budget to pull that off, which totally fair. I totally respect that. However, I will say that if they had if if they had just used actual plush, you know, a plush bear and a plush pig and they didn't move and then these horrible killings happened. That would, I think that would actually be weirder and more interesting than what we got, because it would be like, how are they even doing this? Like, there's some sort of, you know, supernatural force that's that like, even if we didn't see the move, you know, like the, uh, the angels on Doctor Who, where they only, you know, they mm-hmm. can only move when you're not looking at them. You know, like, there's ways to, there's ways to solve these problems and be really creative and really free. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to embrace the fact that this is public domain. I want to make this transgressive thing. And it's like, well, it seems like you had that idea because you knew you could you could turn a buck. You could make a quick buck at it. But there's so many more places to go. Well, yeah, there's the, I, the, the kind of endless, you know, there's the, the whole subcategory of, of Bigfoot movie, like horror movies, of which many of them, you don't ever see the Bigfoot or maybe you see it like right at the end. Everything mm-hmm. else is just like shadow and implication. Mm-hmm. And why not do that? And then at the end, have us you can just have one good shot and you're and you're good. As opposed to having this 
plastic head. Piglet Piglet have been starving to the point of cannibalism. They don't look like they were starving. I'm just going to put it out there. Like the Pooh and Piglet characters. They've eaten a lot of people. They've had, they've had a pretty good ride. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's a McDonald's nearby as well, but they clearly (laughs) have not been, uh, you know, living on the edge there. So uh, it's uh, a little hard for me to have any sympathy for them. As we've mentioned previously, the budget for this was $100,000. They filmed it in 10 days. And again, no slouch on money, no slouch on time. You got to do what you got to do. It's the it's the creative force behind it that is is lacking. You know, there was a lot of concern over making sure that this would get lawyered to death by Disney. You know, the only other movie I can think of that comes close to this is Escape from Tomorrow, which was the horror movie that was gorilla shot in Disneyland and Disney World on like consumer camcorders and edited together. And again, like that could have, there's a really fun idea in that movie, the execution, like it goes pretty off the rails by the end. It is actually weirder and more interesting than than this movie, but it walks right up to the line of having something interesting to say and then decides, nah, we're not actually going to say anything interesting. Again, trying to save money. I feel like, you know, you can see all of that hundred grand on the screen. I will give them that. Nobody was walking away from this as an embezzlement scheme with like, you know, well, there's $80,000 on the screen. The other $20,000 went in somebody's pocket. You know, I do believe they, they spent all that money. They didn't do any reshoots, you know, unless there was like a really glaring error. They just sort of, you know, roll camera, went with it. First take as much as possible. I also will say that shows, but again, I respect the 10 day deadline. If you're shooting on location, I can totally understand just trying to make the most of it. Jennifer Jenkins, the director of Duke Center for the City of Public Domain, says, quote, the fact that some of the people may be disturbed or revolted by this particular reuse of some of the characters from Winnie the Pooh doesn't detract from the value of the public domain. This is how people throughout history have created. They've always drawn on or been inspired by earlier works. Time will tell with this movie or with any other reuse of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet, whether movies like this will be rewarded in the marketplace or if they have any enduring appeal. My thing is time will tell. I think she's 100% right on that. I do think, again, that like, you know, this went from getting being one of those movies that would just pop up on what every on-demand, you know, rental service there is. But then, you know, because of the concept, they got a like one night release out of it. And then that snowballed into a full theatrical release. So like that seems to be the smartest thing about the movie was like putting it together uh, and making sure that we, you know, it, it dodged the legal questions. You know, they did actually shoot in Ashdown Forest in Sussex, which was the real life inspiration for the Hundred Acre Wood. So like that's cool. Again, according to Frank Waterfield, uh, a lot of people immediately shot him down when they realized that he was making a poo horror movie. You know, they don't people don't want to be involved in something that feels like it's going to be this transgressive because it could be a mark against their resume going forward. I don't know. It seems like he got so caught up in the, like, how can I do this movie? <laughs> then like the actual script for the movie feels like a little bit of an afterthought. I definitely see that in this. And, and I'm going to keep giving ways that it could have been better because I see kernels. I see kernels that are really interesting. You know, as, as we were talking about earlier, the idea of not seeing the you know whether it's the imaginary creature or it's an actual killer go jaws style the first 15 minutes of this movie 
are the best 15 minutes of the movie because we don't see Pooh and Piglet almost at all. We see them reacting to it. The quality of that is not always great, but the reactions are good. The having animation show the like emaciated versions of the creatures from Hundred Acre Woods. All of those are kind of cool ideas. And then they just throw them all out after the first 15 minutes and do kind of the schlocky, we have masks that look like characters and we have girls that we can rip the clothes off of and kill in horrific ways. And that's, that's all people are really here for. Uh, when I think, you know, people would actually show up for a movie that does do the transgression against Disney not against the audience. I, mean, I think Megan's point's a good one. And if I think about the budget side, so Terrifier, which which is your very misogynistic splatter film, but got a big cult following enough to get Terrifier 2 out, and then that actually you know made quite a bit of bank. The first Terrifier mm-hmm. was a budget of about $35,000. So this was all just like innovative, let's find ways to do it. In terms of like more interesting film, the first Paranormal Activity, the original budget was 15000 so that again, low budget, not a lot of effects, but a good idea. And mm-hmm. obviously one that carried mm-hmm. a franchise ended up making a lot, a lot of money. And then in terms of other, you know, a, a very, very recent example, that's probably the same year as, as this came out, a film that might've gone under the radar for some folks, but a, a film called Skinnamarink, um, mm, that is yep. all atmosphere, all, you know, things you don't see, sounds you hear, et cetera, et cetera. So again, not the kind of not quite the same as Winnie the Pooh, but you know you've got a film and that budget was fifteen thousand. So for fifteen thousand dollars, Skinnamarink creates this really intense atmospheric, like what is going on, the mystery that that you were talking about kind of happens in the first few minutes of this film. If you just want to be gore splatter, Terrifier does it for thirty five thousand dollars and at least is more extravagant and innovative with its kills. And if you want the interesting idea, like what would happen if Winnie and the Pooh and Piglet were actually alive, you got paranormal activity. But again, all those on a fraction of the budget, but all of them had an idea or a plot or a, you know something. This, to Megan's point, was just like, oh, we've got Winnie the Pooh. And it's like they let a couple of 12-year-olds go, yeah, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, for no particular good reason. It's been a while since I've watched a movie that had like zero personality to it. And and I that was my main thing going over. It's funny because Megan, I, I like took a bunch of notes while I was while I was watching. And then when I saw your takes, I was like, oh yeah, I don't have like anything to add because we are a hundred percent on the same page with 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 all this stuff. Because again, like the revenge plot only really makes sense with Christopher Christopher Robin. It's like, okay, so they hate humans, but like they didn't really have a relationship with any other humans before so like i don't know what, like right like what what does that even mean and i you know i'm i'm all for being transgressive when there's a point to it but mm-hmm. it, i also didn't even find this transgressive enough to be like like i i didn't feel shocked beyond the moment of them flogging chris robin with with eeyore's tail but but then I realized there wasn't anything else going on. Like the movie wasn't saying anything with that. It wasn't saying like, oh, you know, Chris, like, again, if this had been like an anti-landlord movie or, you know, a very much like an anti-Disney movie where, 
you know, Christopher Robin grew up and became like a finance bro or something like that. And he was like about to sell the hundred acre wood to developers or, you know, like there's, there's a million different ways you could go with this and actually like say something of anything. And this just felt like they were like, oh yeah, like we got a bunch of money we'll do this movie and like whatever. But it just was, it it was like boring, which is like the worst Mm -hmm. thing a movie can be. (laughs) When we did our episode on Song of the South, our biggest take of it was it's racist. There's no denying that. But beyond that, it's just not a good movie. And there's no reason to watch it to begin with, even if you were somehow able to discount all of the really problematic aspects. And I think that's kind of where we land with this. It doesn't do transgressive right. It doesn't do horror right. It doesn't do Winnie the Pooh right. Like, what what does it have? I think that if we really have to go back to the concept and maybe just pick one, but there could have been a really interesting element with talking about this and Peter Pan. Christopher Robin was a real person. He was Milne's son. And he had to deal with the fact that his he was forever tied to this character that people thought they knew. Same thing with uh, Peter Llewellyn and his family with Peter Pan. We could have had a really interesting element where their stories are kind of told through Winnie the Pooh of Winnie the Pooh has had these corporations telling who he is and that's not who he is. And how does he deal with it? There's just... I almost feel like there's more ways to do it right than there are to do it wrong. I don't know how you (laughs) didn't stumble into a better movie. I don't know. This is perhaps unnecessarily harsh, but I, I, I just really only saw a couple of kernels that were really showing that there was anything beneath the, if I say slasher and poo, they will give me money. Yeah, I, I have to say, Megan, I am so glad that you gave me the heads up that it was available on the free version of Peacock because I I was like an hour away from hitting the like $3.99 rental button. And that may be like the best $4 I've never spent <laughs> because I was like, at least I didn't have to pay to sit through that movie. <laughs> Megan owes me four bucks. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I I, want my $2. That's what I want. I will gladly pay you back for that. That is, that is fair. Having the Peacock version definitely was, yeah, it's, it's money you can't get back. It's time you can't get back to, but it's, it's, it's not worth even the few bucks. And that's, that's the really unfortunate thing. What, What makes this even more complicated and, and kind of interesting is Because people hated the concept so much, and because so many people like me saw that it has a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes and went, it can't be worth that. Like, how do you even get that? It can't be. This movie actually made a good amount of money. I mean, it didn't, it's in the top 20 highest grossing horror films of 2023 so far. It made over $2 million, which is a decent amount with how few theaters it was actually out in. This movie did relatively well. And from that, the director has said, number one, there is a sequel on the way. It has a higher budget. It does have Tigger. We're doing it. And he's also said 
that Kendall, believe it or not, they are planning on making the Slasher Poo cinematic universe. That is in the plans. I'm sure Marvel is very concerned about losing their market share to the uh, <laughs> Poo cinematic universe. Well, I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, any given bad horror film has spawned about 40 uh, sequels and franchises. So everybody wants to franchise. So God bless them. You know, they made some money. Do, do you, do you do you, man? That's what I say. It's going to, it's going to take a really, really big pull for me to ever come back to watch a, a sequel. <laughs> like it, like it would, it would have to be like having a 97% on, on Rotten Tomatoes where people were like, you know what? That first one was terrible, but they really figured it out. And like, there's a lot going on that, you know, it's, but that seems unlikely because this does, it's really a shame because you know we're talking about the public domain we typically think of or at least i typically think of a cash grab of like you know the exorcist movie that just came out where they're like hey we spent a bunch of money on the rights we're going to bring it into to blumhouse we're going to give it to david gordon green who made one out of three well-liked halloween movies and then <laughs> and then we're you know it's going to make the same amount of money that the previous two sequels made 20 years ago and so we we have not recouped like that feels like more of a cash grab, whereas this, you know, feels like they're trying to do something with it. But it ends up feeling like a cash grab because there wasn't anything behind the idea beyond what if Pooh was a was a, a, a slasher villain. And I just, you know, it's there's just not that there's just not that much there on, on underneath all of it. And I think, you know, I was reading some of the some of the negative reviews on there, you know, as, as we've been talking, like. Kim Newman of Empire really summed it up <laughs> where he goes as a subversive take on Mill and it's achingly banal as a roar horror film it's more inept than the most wretched wrong turn sequel as a would-be cult classic it commits the ultimate sin of being no fun at all and I think I'm I'm right there with that review in terms of there's really just nothing here and you know I it's the only kind it's the only kind of movie that is fun if you are watching it with a bunch of people and you're all a little drunk and you are, you know, you're doing the mystery science three, three, 3000, you know, pushing, pushing back on the movie and actively taking it down while watching it. And this is worse than some of those movies that they do that with. <laughs> I think it would be hard to do because there's literally no joy in this at all. It's like, <laughs> there's not even like bad joy. And, but I do think, you know, but to the box office point, you know, it, 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 there was a time when these kinds of low-budget exploitation films, especially back in the day of VHS, were, you know, quite a thing. People would go and they would get those full moon video, like straight to video, like, you know, Doll Man or, you know, uh, uh, Puppet Master or Evil Toys or Demonic Toys. Like all these kind of like really low budget out there, like bad special effect. Then sci-fi sort of was doing it for a while with kind of riffs on, you know, shark mageddon or all those you know sharknado and all that sort of stuff and then there were always the the very very low budget ripoffs you know jurassic park comes out and it's dinosaur park you know and then all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff um so i think there's a there's a i think there's a desire among audiences for that kind of cult cheap exploitation cinema because it is a little transgressive and it kind of twists when it you know shouldn't and you're kind of expecting something i just think as we've been beating the dead, uh, uh, I guess, Eeyore. mule, you know, yeah. the dead Eeyore, uh, <laughs> it just needs some spark of something. And this mm -hmm. just is 
uh, you know, to Newman's point, it's lifeless. It's a lifeless, sad, it's sad. I think I just left feeling sad, you know, mm-hmm. in, in not a good way. Yeah. And, and I think it says a lot that all of the controversy that I read up, read about all happened before the movie actually came out, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you know, it, it's not like something like, you know, dogma or something where like there was, there was a lot of grumbling beforehand or whatever. And then the movie comes out and people are like really, really pissed about it and are, you know, taking up arms and talking about it on Twitter and whatever. It, it was like a little bit of controversy because everyone's like, oh, I really hate that idea. And I don't really want to watch that. And then the people who saw it, who were like into the idea were like, had nothing to say about it and so it kind of just it feels like it's already sort of evaporated as quickly as it as it got any attention but you know like like we've been saying it got enough to get you know a a pretty good box office run off of its budget but i don't think there's enough here to sustain a sequel like i, I can't imagine the sequel is going to make half as much as this one just because enough people saw this and word of mouth is is you know going to be terrible when the the trailer for that comes up you're like well you know fool me once <laughs> right uh, you know shame on shame shame on you but i'm i'm not going to go back yeah the I, think, director... I think margot robbie is going to be in the second one though so that'll bring in some eyes it's, it's going to back to be a barbie winnie the pooh blood and honey mashup thing it's uh <laughs> honestly would not be surprised by that i i keep thinking and this is going to sound silly but i keep thinking about like toy stories 3 and 4 not that this is the the same thing because if there's a toy story parallel in the horror genre it is more the the chucky side of things but the idea of abandonment and what do they do after you know somebody has outgrown them but to be fair andy didn't know they were alive and they he passed them down to somebody else which could have been an interesting breakdown all of the people that Pooh is coming for are the people who have been Pooh's friends over the years and have all gone on to abandon him. Uh, again, there's just so many different ways that it could have been done better. But it it just comes to the point where I would rather us spend a few hours spinning fun, you know, Winnie the Pooh horror ideas than watch a sequel to this. I don't care what they do with Tigger because it's not going to be great. I'm disappointed that he's talking about doing a crossover with Bambi because Ryan, we enjoyed the idea of a horror Bambi movie. Mm -hmm. There's some cool ways to approach that, but I don't want it crossed with this. I, I just don't think there's, if anything, there's negative momentum here. It is halting my desire to see more from this genre as alternate of anti Disney copyright breakers or just horror at all. Honestly, this is this one of the worst slashers I've ever seen. And that's honestly a really low bar. There are some really awful slasher <laughs> movies out there. There's some great ones. I, 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 like I said, I love slashers, but it's not a high bar to, 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 for that specific sub, subgenre of horror. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's an effective slasher at all. Like, it really just is not, you know, as we said, it's kind of taking, you know, three or, or more ideas about how to even set up a slasher and kind of throwing them all together. And, 
and not following through on on any of them you know I, the slashers are really fun genre all, much of the time even the ones that like aren't great can still be fun because either like they have like one really great kill or they have like a really interesting location or you know some kind of of twist on something i mean like i love my blood the original my bloody valentine because even beyond valentine's day the theme is vaguely just canada (laughs) (laughs) and so like you can turn anything into a slasher and this just feels like there wasn't i don't know it it really like like kendall's like we're kind of beating the dead horse at this point with this you know there are other ways to cross horror over with these classic things like i read pride and prejudice and zombies when it when it came out and i thought that that was that was a fun take as someone who enjoys both jane austen and zombies i read i read that book i was perfectly satisfied i saw the movie it wasn't great but it was definitely better than this because at least it had some kind of fun performances and there were actors who've been in other like period costume dramas who were now in a costume horror thing and so there's just a there, there was enough there where i watched it and I, I didn't regret watching it even though i probably will never i probably won't ever revisit it whereas this i i was actively loathing the movie by the time we got to the, <laughs> the end of this there's actually a direct example of what this could have been now i will say i didn't enjoy it but i'm i'm holding a book up to the screen now the call of Thulu came out last year. This is an anthology of Lovecraftian horror set in the Winnie the Pooh universe. According to the book, it is selections by Neil Baker, desecrations by Carmen and Sarah, which I find just a hilarious way to phrase it. Although this didn't get nearly the attention that Blood and Honey did, so it doesn't have, you know, this the same number, the reviews for this book were overwhelmingly positive. I found it a bit boring, but to be fair, I'm not a huge fan of Lovecraft and I'm not a huge fan of the original Winnie the Pooh. And it manages to keep both of those styles pretty well. But this was a very similar situation. It's Pooh is in the public domain. Let's cross it with horror. But generally speaking, it had positive reviews. So some of the reviews for that were... Uh, the juxtaposition of cosmic horror that is Lovecraft existing with within and around something as innocent as the Hundred Acre Wood has scratched an itch for something more that has until now evaded my attempts to do so. It has been a macabre joy in every sense of the phrase, and I am happier knowing it lived within the same universe that this book exists. Another review calls it a really fun mashup of Lovecraft and Pooh stories, cleverly drawn and written in a way that brought me back to childhood reading Pooh and teenage me reading Lovecraft. Nostalgic and worth the read. And yet another review says this anthology is masterfully done. It keeps the voices of the original Pooh books while also incorporating some surprisingly well-fitting horror elements. I enjoyed this thoroughly and I can't recommend it enough. Having not read it myself, but but these reviews seem like it is actually trying to evoke the original. Whereas, you know, in Blood and Honey, it doesn't really seem to be evoking anything about A.A. Milne, except, you know, the way that the that opening narration over the animation is done, which is probably the best part of the movie, nor do, is it tipping its hat to the Disney version. It, you know, there's not even a thing where I'm just imagining things that I would throw into this movie if I were making it just like on the fly. Like I would have one of the characters see a silhouette that has like very sort of mouth shaped ears <laughs> And like, be like, you know, like, and just like, not, you know, like nod to it, like just be poke at the ribs a little bit. Whereas this, it, 
this is like the safest Winnie the Pooh slasher movie that could ever possibly exist. Yeah, why why didn't one of the victims why weren't they wearing a red bright red, you know, half shirt, right? Just just to mess with yes. Disney owning the red shirt. So like fine, a victim could do could. I just want to throw in one thing when you're talking about the the Puthula. Um, another place where, again, some of your listeners might be interested is Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, of course, became a really mm. horrible movie. But if you bracket the horrible movie, it's actually like I think about five or six volumes. And Winnie the Pooh is actually a recurring character on the side. And again, what Moore does in, in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is mix in a ton of references. So if you really are a bibliophile who loves like that period of the 19th century, early 20th century literature, you'll find you know references to Sherlock Holmes and Winnie the Pooh shows up and all kinds of other characters. Mary Poppins shows up in, as a kind of important character in one of the Alan Moore uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But I did recall like Pooh is this kind of character that shows up at Sherlock Holmes' house and he's, he's in another place. You just sort of see him walking around. Um, so there are lovely ways of doing this, like of taking a big uh, kind of blender and mixing together genres and characters and making it something that is richer and deeper and more fascinating to think of what it would be like to live in a world where the Pooh could actually exist, whether he becomes malevolent or not. Like that idea could really be played out. And this, as we've probably made abundantly clear, <laughs> uh, had no ideas going for it. Yeah, I think I think at the end of, I think it's the second League of Extraordinary Gentlemen story that like, it's like uh, Captain Nemo, Jekyll and Hyde, Mina Harker, and a few other characters are fighting the Martians from the War of the Worlds. Like, it, it's so much fun and Alan Moore just being a complete master of storytelling in, in a lot of ways and and just having a, a insanely deep knowledge of British literature especially mm-hmm. you know he he makes it look easy but there is still there's there's so there's so many ways to be playful and fun and poke at the ribs of Disney poke at the ribs of Disney adults in some ways like there's so many things that are like ripe for parody or commentary or or anything and this like this may be too mean so speak speaking to our editor tessa if you if you feel this is too mean you can cut it out i feel like this movie was made by people who just have no personality (laughs) (laughs) ow fair i tessa leave it in it's perfectly accurate i'll stand by that come come I'm at Syracuse University. If you don't like it, come see me and I'll have a conversation. <laughs> no, but I think your point about Alan Moore, I mean, I, I think that is just one example of, of a trend. I was thinking when you were talking about that, you know, there's a wonderful bit in one of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where he does uh, a Lovecraft story in the literary style of P.G. Woodhouse. So you have Bertie and G's Worcester in this absolutely over-the-top, ridiculous, facing, you know, uh, Cthulhu, right? And it's like, that's hilarious. Like, that's just brilliant. And these folks just had none, not even an inkling of a moment of a thought beyond we can make a horror movie with Winnie the Pooh. Let's drip honey and take people's tops off it was just yeah yeah i've, I've yeah. gone now to hoping I'm... that this movie isn't so bad that it sours people on the idea of making a horror movie out of some of these children's icons because to what we've said this whole episode there's a lot of rich things to mine you know especially psychologically social commentary 
all these kinds of things that can be pulled out of it. I think of all the Disney characters that I can think of who are going to be public domain in the near future, I think Bambi's maybe the most interesting to make a horror movie because, you know, Bambi's got motive. Like, humans killed his mom. You know, like he like there's a, an easy revenge story. You can tie it into environmentalism and all these kind of you know without making it you know super super surface level in the text. You can do all these things with that kind of story, and it it's simple and straightforward. And this feels like it just didn't. You know, I don't know that these guys have ever read Winnie the Pooh, like or seen a horror movie for that matter. Well, <laughs> I think they did so many cut and pastings they had to have watched at least a like a compilation video of kills not <laughs> See, a full I movie just the kill scenes I, I think they just read the wikipedia descriptions of plots like <laughs> i don't think they actually watched because yeah. they would have known something about building tension or pace they just read wikipedia and went like oh someone got killed in the hot tub we could do that so but no, i, mean, I, I think i would love to see a bambi folk horror right so folk mm -hmm. horror is very hot right mm -hmm. now and a lot of that kind of in the woods and what's going on and what kind of mystical things are in there. We're messing with them. Like that idea seems like really ripe for possibility. Obviously, none of us would recommend this movie. But what, I, what I'm going to do is make everyone think of at least one moderately redeemable thing. I will say as they got to the people, the, the guys in the truck fighting poo, uh, they started saying a bunch of things like, no, no, poo, don't kill people. And that was moderately funny. I started laughing once they actually started calling him his name because most of the time he just like existed. But once they started saying like, oh no, poo, you can't do this. I'm going to kill you, piglet. Like th those were moderately funny to me. I enjoyed those those few seconds. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say the animation was uh, the, I thought the animation was actually pretty well done and the emaciated versions of the characters in animation actually looked pretty good. The mm -hmm. sort of end of the cold open where they are like dragging Christopher Robin back into, you know, whatever cave thing is is happening in there. It, it was actually like pretty well done. Like that that was fun. And then I remember there was like it was right around 15 minutes in I paused it. And I was like, this is pretty bad, but hopefully it gets better. <laughs> and it did not, I will say. I had already <laughs> seen the, be the, the best parts of the movie. So it, op it opens strong, I guess, is a, is a positive note. <laughs> yeah, wow. You guys took the, I, the only thing I'll add, I think we mentioned it earlier, was the the flogging Christopher Robin was kind of fun. Because not, not necessarily just because of, like, it could have been a cathartic moment if we actually thought about innocence abandoned, et cetera. But it was just because the Christopher Robin character was such a whining, annoying git, and I just was like, I, I thought I want to flog him. Like, can I get, can I get a couple of licks in? Because he was just kind of pathetic. I will say, for me, the the moment that I thought might have been redemptive was at the end when there's finally this moment where Christopher Robin and Pooh, I guess, have a word, you know, where it's clear that that Pooh is kind of feeling that abandonment. But it was just so too little, too late, and then no development. I just thought, well, mm -hmm. you brought me here. It seems like this may have been the point that it's all about abandoning this characters or whatever. You get to this final moment where there's going to be at least an emotional climax, and they couldn't manage to do it. I don't know if they just couldn't 
write the dialogue or come up with an emotion that was actual sincere. What do you think its Oscar chances are? That's what I would. Uh, I wanna... <laughs> Slim. <laughs> if the strike had gone on longer. It <laughs> <laughs> might have been the one thing that would save it. It's a total <laughs> shutdown of all other filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. If there had been three movies released this year, I think it might have gotten some nominations. Disney itself, so far, in just the movies that we've covered up to this point, has done a better job with horror than this movie. I, I think the you know the trees in Snow White alone are scarier than anything in this entire movie. I'll I'll agree with that. Well, and I think there were I think there were a couple, there's at least one or two live action Disney films that were kind of marketed as as some horror uh for young people and if you're interested actually i've got a friend uh cat catherine cat lester uh who's in britain uh but she had a book quite recently about horror for kids uh and i and i've been on panels with her a few times and she's talked about i can't remember there was a there was like the, there was a movie so cut this part out because i don't remember the name of it there was there was a disney movie that was kind of framed as like a horror movie for that kind of pre-teen teenish era and she talked a lot about that and the marketing of it and kind of how it was built out so if, if you want to do a future episode like that i would i would definitely reach out to cat because she's she's great well dude, uh, there's, there's definitely some like 80s I feel like in that era that that uh when we get there we'll have to we'll have to come back to you to remember her name for sure. Yeah, it's like Watcher in the Woods or something like yeah. that. Is that is that that's uh, I don't mm. remember the de- I don't remember. She'll know, but but yeah, no she she's great. One of the more interesting things to me. So I had pulled together a bunch of questions about how does this movie reference Disney and the answer is it it really doesn't. Uh the fact that it has animation is is really the closest it got for me. Uh, how does this make you think differently about Disney and all of these things that it, it doesn't really do. I think the biggest proof here is that Disney will sue anyone for messing with their stuff. And I did a decent bit of research. Disney has not said anything about this movie. They have not bothered to say anything about this movie. Part of that is a PR tactic because you don't want to amplify the movie by deigning to recognize it. But the director has also said that he has not been directly contacted by Disney or their legal team. And I think that goes back to the fact that this movie was built on the controversy of playing with a beloved childhood character and specifically playing with Disney. And it doesn't. It doesn't do anything particularly relevant to Disney. And Disney knew that and didn't see any real reason to even bother under the table threatening him or or telling him what to do because it just wasn't even worth it and i i think that that's kind of the sad consensus on kind of what we've been saying that it's just not worth it no it's not even worth being condemned it's literally you know that phrase beneath contempt this is it this is literally so low it's like not even worth having contempt for it you just kind of scrape it off the bottom of your shoe and keep walking I, I was going to ask, so you've studied controversy and, and talked about these kinds of things. Do you think there's anything really interesting or, or relevant going on with the controversy with this movie and with the sacredness of, of Disney and childhood? You know, do you think there's anything kind of relevant to that point? 
I mean, the controversy is interesting. It, it, it is, it's not unprecedented for there to be controversies around films at the concept level, but then that mm -hmm. never actually generate real controversy in the sense, partly because no one saw them. Um, I actually mm -hmm. think this is probably an example. And I, and I, when I was first doing the project, looking at controversial films and going back through archives and kind of tracking down like what actually provoked like letters to the editor or people to file lawsuits or whatever. It's surprising how often horror films claimed that they were controversial or claimed that they were banned in all these places and they actually weren't. Like, or there's no evidence mm -hmm. that they were ever banned or that anybody ever talked about them, like at all. And, you know, it's a, the most controversial film in the United States and think, well, no one's ever heard of this film and no one, no one's ever said a word about it. So it's hard to be, so I do feel like this was one of those examples of, I'd call it kind of like commercial controversy or exploitation controversy where you're really trying to lean into the idea, oh, this is very transgressive. Just watching this is, is kind of an act of transgression Whereas you get to watch it and you think, no, that was just an act of tedium, really more than transgression. Pretty, I really pretty liked deeply. it. I gotta say, I really, <laughs> it actually touched me. I feel like, you know, I, I, I laughed, I cried, it became a part of me. I liked it better than cats. It was very, very important to me. So, so, so with all that being said, those are our, our perhaps final thoughts on Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. But next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we will be returning to our British adventures with Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. The movie moves from traditional English stories to a Scottish folk hero, blending fact and fiction, as Disney is wont to do. And we will continue on with uh, our third season. Kendall, thank you very much for joining us and sharing in this joint fever dream that was Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. And if there's anything you would like to plug any of your your books or or other things that you're doing out there that you want to share with our listeners who do like horror given the spooky time of year please feel free to do so well megan and ryan thanks so much for having me i will just promise anyone who wants to look me up and find my various books on horror that there is not a single word written about winnie the pooh blood and honey and there never will be <laughs> thank you <laughs> In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter uh, at dreammindheart and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Uh, and again, if you are looking to enter one of our giveaways, please keep an eye on our Twitter. Listen to our previous episodes this season for the code words. More to come on that. And of course, thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, uh, Honey Badger Spoke for our theme song, and to our editor, Tessa Zuela. <laughs>